We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 24. Now, if you have been here for a while, or even if you've been here a few times, you know that I use a lot of snack-based illustrations. It's just part of who I am. Uh, And so I'm going to tell you this morning, one of my favorite snack foods in the world is popcorn. Always has been. I know a lot of people love popcorn, but as I was growing up, sort of the gold standard of popcorn was the popcorn that you got at the movie theater. For me, if I go to the movies and I don't get popcorn, the experience is not complete. Like I haven't really truly been to the movies. So sometimes I sit next to people at the movies who just kind of stare at the screen with nothing in their mouths. And I don't understand it. I'm like, how can you come in and smell that popcorn and not eat any? How can you even enjoy the movie if you're not munching on popcorn, right? So for me, over the years, you know, I tried various ways of making popcorn at home, but it never really matched up to what I tasted in the movie theater. But last year, for a gift, I bought for my wife something that revolutionized and changed my life. I'm going to share it with you this morning, just a little bit. The Whirly Pop. Yeah, a couple of you know. Okay, so I bought this for Shannon, but I will admit I have used this a great deal more than she ever has. I began to experiment with the Whirly Pop, and here's the thing. At first, I was a little bit skeptical because it takes a little bit more time to make the popcorn. You have to mix some ingredients, and you have to turn that little crank, and you have to wait for it to start popping. And so I, I began to experiment with it, and at first it was, it was okay, it wasn't that great. But as I sort of mixed different ingredients and tried different things, all of a sudden one night I hit upon a popcorn recipe, and I tasted it, and I went, this is it. This is the thing, right? This is the popcorn that I've been looking for all my life. And in fact, I'm, I'll tell you right now, I think it's better than the movie theater popcorn, right? So I begin to eat this and, and uh, it was like a before and after type of experience for me. If you can have a spiritual awakening through popcorn, uh, this was my moment, right? So uh, we had a friend, Kyle Cox. Some of you know Kyle. He's now one of our missionaries overseas. Kyle and his wife, Chamilla actually stayed with us over the summer for a little while. And I had told Kyle previously, I said, Kyle, you got to come taste this popcorn, right? Because Kyle's a popcorn guy. And I said, it is better than the movie theater. And he said, whatever, right? He just kind of kept dissing the whirly pop. And I said, just, just trust me, Kyle. Like, it's better, So he comes over, he starts staying in our house, and the first night he's there, I said, Kyle, I'm going to make you this popcorn. And I made the popcorn, and he tasted it, and he he just kind of walked into the other room. He didn't say anything, and it was like he was gathering his thoughts. And he came back in, and he goes, you were right. And every single night that he was at our house, Kyle would say, can you make that whirly pop? Like, I would come home from a late night meeting, and Kyle would be on the couch, like with these big eyes, like looking are you going to make it tonight? Can you make it please? Right? Because for him, like for me, it was a before and after type of experience. There was no going back to like a a microwave bag of Orville Redenbacher, right? It just wasn't the same after we had tasted the Whirly Pop. Now, why do I share all of this with you? Partly because you may want to buy one, but also partly because there's a parallel here to what we see in the New Testament when Paul talks about our relationship with Jesus. Because Paul indicates, as you walk through the book of Ephesians, especially the first three chapters and the beginning of chapter four, Paul indicates that coming to know Jesus is a before and after type of experience. It certainly was for Paul. And he says, here's what happened when you came to know Jesus. There were old ways of doing things 
that as you walked in the course of the world, in the course of your life, you really just followed whatever desires came into your heart and mind, right? You might have done some good things and you might have done some bad things, but fundamentally you just kind of did whatever you felt like. Right? You just did whatever you felt like, whatever it seemed right in your own eyes. Right? And more often than not, what that meant is that you pursued false and sinful ways of finding significance and peace and joy in your life. Right? So you chased after maybe ambition, or you chased after a lot of money, or you chased after sexual pleasure, or you simply decided life is hard and I'm going to dull the pain and escape through some sort of substance, right? So you began your life trying to find joy and significance somewhere other than the life of God. But Paul says, here's what happened. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you cross over a threshold from death to life, from old to new. And everything changes, right? And it's not that in an instant, all of a sudden, you are free of sin and you never struggle with sin, right? There is a gradual process of transformation. We call that sanctification in theological terms. But what Paul says is, no, something real did happen when you trusted in Jesus. And now the Spirit of God lives in your heart and empowers you for service and obedience to Jesus Christ. You've gone from old to new. You've gone from death to life. Nothing is ever intended to be the same. And you see this play out in the New Testament as people encounter Jesus. Some of you will remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, right? I was thinking about it as the kids were in here earlier because most of us, where we first encounter the story of Zacchaeus is in Sunday school and we sing it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? And what did he do? He climbed up in a sycamore tree to do what? See what he could see. And when the Savior passed his way, Jesus looked up and I can't remember the rest of the words, but basically Jesus says, what? I'm coming to your house today. Now we sing that. We go, that's a cool song about a short little guy who climbed up in a tree, right? But the point of the story, as you read it in Luke 19, is not that Zacchaeus was a short guy, right? Although that makes him really cool. But the point of the story (laughs) is that Zacchaeus was transformed. Because who was Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector. And what was a tax collector? He was a thief. He took money on behalf of the Roman government And then he took more than he had to turn over to them, more and more in spades until he lined his own pockets to the point that he was wealthy at the expense of his Jewish countrymen. And yet he hears about the Savior and he says, I got to see this guy. And so because he's short and he can't see, he climbs up into a tree and he sees Jesus. And Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, you come on down. I'm coming to your house. You have to understand the significance of that. For a rabbi and a teacher to walk into the house of this sinful man, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by his encounter with Jesus that everything changes. He says, you know what I'm going to do from this point on? He says, I will pay back anything that I have stolen fourfold. Because nothing was the same. And we see that pattern over and over and over again in the scriptures as people move from death into life, and from old into new. And that certainly was the story of the Apostle Paul, whose God was climbing the ranks of the Jewish authority structure and preserving the law and being the best at the law so that he could be the most well-respected member of the Sanhedrin to the point that he persecuted Christians because they were a threat to his power. 
until Jesus got him on the road to Damascus. And nothing was ever the same. And as we get to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has already laid out for us in the first three chapters why nothing is ever the same once you know Jesus Christ. And then here in chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, here's what he says is, even though you are new, even though you have been transformed, guess what? You're still going to be tempted by the old bag of Orville Redenbacher. Right? There are days that you're sitting on the sofa and you just think, man, it just, it sounds easier. It sounds faster. And then you take that bite of your old life and you go, oh, that's not what will satisfy. That's not what will bring me the life and the significance and the joy that I'm yearning for. And so here's where Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, your old way was the way of death. You were cut off from the life of God. And yet God gave you life in Jesus Christ. So he says, why would you go back to that old way? Now you're called to put aside the old way of life and put on the new way of life. That is those old patterns of greed and lust and pride and anger and envy. Put them aside so that when we wake up in the morning, we say, you know what? Like an old pair of rags, I'm going to set that aside and I will put on the new life that God gave me. And as we read Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, here is the question. Where are those places in times where the routines of our life lead us down the old paths, right? Where we say, you know what? Walking with Jesus, it's where life is found, but it's not always easy. It takes work and diligence, and it takes a lifetime to transform. And so where are those moments where I say, you know what? I'm just going to take a shortcut and try to find life and try to find joy and try to find significance in some old pattern, some old sin, some way of life that doesn't reflect Jesus Christ. Where are those patterns in your mind and in your heart? And how do we begin to renew our minds and our hearts to put on the new? That's where Paul is going in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17 to 24. Look with me, starting in verse 17. He says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here's the first thing that Paul tells us is this. Don't walk like you used to. Don't walk like you used to. He talks about the Gentile pagans. That's what these Ephesians used to be. He says, look, I don't want you to walk like you used to, like they walk, right? There's a parallel here between Ephesians 4 and what we see in Romans chapter 1, right? Because in Romans chapter 1, you remember the course of sin, is very similar to what we see. In fact, some of the words are very similar, that they walked in the futility of their minds. Romans says their foolish hearts were darkened, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What's going on here? There's a progression, right? There's a progression. What seems to be going on is Paul says, here's where sin begins. Here's where the way of futility begins. It starts in your heart. 
It starts with an attitude of my heart that is hard that I say, I don't want to know God. I want to follow my way. That's what you see in Romans. It says they knew God, but they chose not to honor him as God. We make a decision in our hearts and we may not even be fully aware of that decision because we're born as sinners. We say, I don't want God's way. I want Matt's way. I want to pursue life where I want to pursue life. And so we harden our hearts. And then Paul says, as a result of that, he says, your minds are dark and they're ignorant. You know why they're ignorant? This is a chosen ignorance, right? It's not because like I didn't take enough math or I didn't do enough history. It's because I chose not to know God. And he says, those who walk in the course of the world, here's what's surprising. Your mind doesn't work right. We think that we're reasoning correctly when we're reasoning incorrectly, right? Our moral compass is off. And he says, your understanding is dark. You don't understand. So what is evil, you call good. And what is good, you call evil. And then what happens is you begin to act that out. You begin to act out the course of the world and the desires of the flesh in sensuality and impurity and evil. And then what happens? You become so immersed in the course of sin. That he says, you're you're callous to it. You don't even know, you're not even aware of the depths of your sin. Because you swim in an ocean of darkness and sin. Some of you have heard that old story about two young fish in the ocean. Who are swimming along one day together. And as they swim along, they pass an older, wiser fish and they look at each other and the older fish says, the water's really nice today, boys. And he swims on. And after he swims away, the two fish, the two young fish, they look at each other and one of them says, what the heck is water? Because they've been swimming in it so long. They don't even know what they're swimming in. That's what Paul says about the course of the life of the Gentiles. Many years ago, I went to a friend's wedding up in a panhandle town. I'm not going to say where it is in case anybody is from there. But when I drove into the town, there was a giant like rubber processing plant on one side of the road and there's an oil refinery on the other side of the road and it looked like we were in Gotham City, like just belching black smoke off into the air. And I pulled up to this hotel and I could see even before I opened the doors of my car that the hotel was coated in this grime of blackness and soot. And then when I opened the door, the smell about knocked me off my feet. And I remember thinking, how does anybody stand this? How do people live here? And in fact, I actually asked the bride who was from that town, how do people do this? And the answer won't surprise you. Well, they're used to it. You can become accustomed to anything and not realize you're constantly coated with a layer of filth and grime. Not realize it's going down into your lungs and in your body and wreaking havoc on the inside. And Paul says that's the course of sin. We decide in our hearts, look, I want my way. And then we fill our minds and that leads to sinful actions and that makes us callous. And we don't even realize the cycle anymore. 
It's interesting in our culture how there's a strange dichotomy, a sort of dualism we have between what we think about and love and what we do. Right. Case in point, just this past week, if you've been following the news, there was a major story about a a giant Hollywood producer caught in all kinds of sexual sin and sexual violence. And we're shocked. Until we pull back and we think for decades. This is a, a man at the top of an industry who has made his living portraying acts of violence and sexuality and sexual violence for the fantasy and enjoyment of the masses. And then when we find that he lives what he believes, we're shocked. But Paul says, no, that's what we expect. What goes into our minds and our hearts dramatically impacts what we do. And so he says, look, don't walk anymore like the Gentiles walk. Don't follow that pattern. You see this pattern in James chapter 4. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, you say, I want something I don't have. And here's what I think. I don't trust God to meet my needs. So I take in a way that is illegitimate. That's what sin amounts to. I say, I believe life is found somewhere other than Jesus Christ. And God isn't meeting my needs, whether in my career or with my finances, or with my family. God isn't meeting my needs. God won't meet my needs. I don't want God's way. I will take my own life somewhere else. And so I dive down into sin. Look at the list in Galatians chapter 5. The deeds of the flesh are evident. What are they? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Now he's going to go on to contrast that with the fruit of the Spirit, right? But think about this list for a moment because this list could be a list of the vices of our world and our culture, and it is. And think about where these sins stem from, right? So envy and jealousy, covetousness, what happens, right? I get onto Facebook, And I start to look and I go, that other family, they look a lot happier than mine, right? Those people in that picture, they don't argue about who should have bought the milk. I can tell. They're better than I am. And I feel discontent. And so what do I do? Well, I might react in a variety of ways. I might go drink to excess to numb the pain of my discontent. I might go to Amazon and start shopping because maybe if I look better, I can take a picture that looks better than their picture and I'll get 101 likes and they only got 100. And I begin to seek life somewhere else. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, the sexual sins that he lists, what happens? Well, the way that God set out for marriage and for monogamous relationships in marriage. It's the best way. 
but it's not always easy, right? I don't always get everything I want all the time. And so I think maybe there's another path, whether on a screen or through adultery, that will make me feel better. And so we pursue short-term satisfaction over long-term life and relationship with God. Outbursts of anger, disputes, in my discontent, and my lack of trust, I lash out at those around me because they are not providing me what I think I deserve. And Paul says, that's the way you lived. And if you live that way long enough, it's like eating mud and convincing yourself it's chocolate pie. You could eventually convince yourself, couldn't you? Or if you move to Illinois and somebody takes you to their favorite Mexican restaurant in Illinois and you take a bite of that taco and you say, I don't know what this is, but it's not a taco. But if you live there long enough, you might just feel desperate enough to eat it all the time. Right? And you could convince yourself it's good. You could convince yourself it works. And that's what Paul says about sin. So he's going to say, don't, don't do that. Because you are pursuing a path of death. And he'll go on and he's going to say, it's not only that you want to put away the old. Don't walk like you used to. Because it leads to death, but then he's going to say, you walk in the truth. Look at verses 20 to 24. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And he says, you didn't learn Christ that way. Instead, what you learned was that Jesus died for you and rose again to give you a new life where you can be connected to the life of God. And so he says, because of that, you take off the old self and you put on the new self. This imagery of taking off sinful garments and putting on garments of righteousness, it comes straight from the Old Testament. Some of you may be familiar with Zechariah chapter 3, the story of Joshua, the high priest. At a time of apostasy in the nation of Israel, Joshua is the high priest and he goes into the Holy of Holies, which they only did once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he's in the presence of God and he has a vision of God's holiness and beauty. And then to his horror, Joshua looks down and you know what Joshua sees? He is clothed in a robe that is covered in filth. And he says, I'm standing in the presence of Most High God. And I'm dirty. And then God says, hey, take off that filthy robe off of Joshua and replace it with a clean one. He says, Joshua, see, I've I've taken away your iniquity and I've clothed you with righteousness. That's what Paul says has happened to us in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 61, God has clothed me with garments of salvation. 
He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. When Jesus died and rose again, he took on himself all the filth of our sin. And then he rose again and he defeated death and he defeated sin. And all who trust in him, God says, take off the filthy rag. I'm giving you something new. You have life. You have the spirit of God within you. So you have the capacity day by day to say, I'm going to take off the old. I'm going to put on the new. When Shannon and I first got married, she began to transform my wardrobe. There were certain things that I wore that she decided were not up to par for a person she wanted to be with in a public setting. And so over time, she began to change those things. So I would come home and one shirt would be gone and another shirt would be in its place. And what was interesting was on the one hand, I would look and I would go, I liked that blue shirt, but then I would look at the new one and go, but the new one is better, I have to admit. It fits me better. I look better when I wear it, right? And one of our early, I won't say arguments, but maybe differences of opinion was over a shirt that I had worn in my single days that it had a photo of Cookie Monster on the front of the shirt and he was eating a cookie and on the back it said, got cookie with a question mark. And I loved that shirt. I loved it. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I loved that shirt. I wore it all the time. People commented on the shirt. Once I was in a restaurant and somebody offered to give me their shirt in exchange for my Cookie Monster shirt, right? So over the years, I was so proud of this shirt, but here's what happened. It began to deteriorate the more that I wore it because it was a cheap shirt as much as I loved it. So you would wash it and it developed holes. And so after probably a year of this, I realized I can't actually wear it in public, but I'm going to wear it at the house. And, uh, So I would just wear it at the house. And one day I came home and it was in the trash can. And uh, so I I said, can we please just, can we keep this shirt, right? And I I actually wrote a note to my wife, uh, reasons why (laughs) this is important to me to keep this shirt. And she, she, she took it out. She goes, you've made a convincing case here. We kept the shirt for a while. But here's what happened. There was a day several months later where Cookie Monster had deteriorated to the point that you actually could really no longer see his face. There was a giant hole, but I was still hanging on. And one day I'm wearing it and I look down and I thought, what am I doing? It's time to let go. It was probably time to let go years ago, but it's time to let go. So I threw it away and I put on a new shirt. Some of us are clinging to old stuff. Right, patterns of sin that really did not bring us life, but, but have brought us nothing but shame and guilt. And we're walking around in this tattered rag and you go, but it brings me comfort. It brings me a, a short-lived sense of satisfaction. Paul says, now take it off. God's given you a clean one, a new robe, a new garment. Put on the new. Renew your mind. He says, how does this happen? Well, if sin starts in the heart and the mind, so does holiness. He says, you begin to renew your mind in the spirit. 
That is, you take into your heart what is true, that Jesus is where the truth is found, that Jesus is where the life is found, and that the Spirit of God wants to lead you closer and closer to Jesus. And it takes a lifetime. So day after day, you put on the new. How practically then do we do that? Let me offer just a few thoughts this morning. How do we renew our minds? The first one would be this. Believe in Jesus. It may be that you walked in the room this morning with a family member or a friend and you don't trust in Jesus Christ yet. And Paul would say, look, the the process of renewing your mind, of learning to walk in holiness and righteousness, of learning to find real life in God, that begins when you believe in Jesus Christ and you say, I trust that Jesus died for my sin, to take my sin away, and then he rose again to give me life. That's what was illustrated this morning when these men and women went down into the water and they came back up. You know, in the early church, I actually went uh, several years ago to North Africa and I went to ancient Carthage where I was able to see an old baptismal. And the way it was arranged in the early church, here's what they would do is uh, they would go through kind of a year-long catechism process, right? They would learn about Jesus. If you trusted Jesus, you would learn about Jesus for a year and about the church. And then they'd have this baptism ceremony. And what they would do is you would show up and you would be dressed in black, to represent that you were in your sin. And then, I wish I had brought pictures this morning, but you would go down some stairs under the ground, and under the ground was the baptismal itself, and the priest or the pastor would be down there, and you would take off that black robe, and you would go under the water, and then you'd come up, and you'd step on the other side of that baptismal, and they would give you a white one. And then you'd walk back up those stairs into the sunlight, with a white robe, cleansed from sin and made new in Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus, Paul says, that's what happens. If you haven't trusted in Christ, he's offering you life because of his death and resurrection. And all you have to do is say, God, I believe in you. I believe in what Jesus did on my behalf. And then he says, If you believe in Jesus, then you you fill your mind with the truth. You fill your mind with the truth. The passage that I always come back to is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What is more excellent or praiseworthy than the word of God and the truth of the gospel? So that in those moments where sin begins to assault your mind and your heart and you feel like God will not meet my needs and I cannot trust him, you fill your mind with what is true. With the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that lives in your heart. Fill your mind with truth and then you empty your mind of sin. Which is easier to do once your mind is filled with truth. I don't know how many of you in this room have ever had a time in your life where you've decided to change the way you eat, right? Maybe you, you look and you go, ah, I, I need to you know, fit into some different pants or maybe I just feel less energetic than I want to. So what do you do? The first thing we typically do is we go, I need to eat fewer cookies. 
or popcorn. I need to put the whirly pop in the cabinet for a while. Right, but if we don't replace that with something good, then we're just going to live hungry. Right, so, so yeah, you, you put away the cookies, but you're going to have to eat some lettuce. Right? You're going to have to eat some vegetables. You know what happens at first is neither one of those choices feels right. right? Neither one of those choices at first feels good to you. Because your mind and your body constantly say, I don't want cookies, I need them. Or I will die. And you begin to feel that. You feel those hunger pains and you eat the lettuce and you go, not the same. Not the same. But do that for a month, six months, a year, and what happens? Those patterns change. And what once felt wrong begins to bring you life and you say, I feel better. I have more energy. I I look better. Even that salad now tastes good to me because I know it's bringing me life. That's what Paul says. Habits of sin are hard to break, just like any habit, just like biting your fingernails. It's hard to break. I read a book not too long ago that talked about habits, the power of habits And the writer said this, every habit has basically three components to it. One, there's a cue. So the cue might be, I feel bored and discontent. My life is not what I want it to be. My kids are not obeying. My job is not fulfilling. My marriage is troubling me. Whatever it may be, I feel bored. I feel discontent. You have this cue that goes off in your mind. And then there's a routine. What I will do next is I will surf Amazon. Maybe there's something there. And then there's some kind of a reward, right? These earrings dull my pain, right? Whatever it may be. That's not a personal illustration, okay? But you say, there's some kind of little reward. And what happens a week later or a day later? The earrings don't work anymore. Lashing out at your family to try to control them. It doesn't work anymore to fill that void. Drinking. More and more, it doesn't work anymore to fill that void. Reaching out in sexually inappropriate ways online or in real life, it doesn't work anymore to fill that void. And so what happens? We go back to it. The cue and the pattern repeats itself. So what do you do? We got to change the routine, right? So you say, look, I have, I have a sin cue. I feel bored and discontent. I'm alone at my house. I feel angry. I feel like I can't trust God. And I say, when I feel that, I go to this old pattern by habit and by rote. What do I need to do? You replace your routine with something better. And what you do is in that moment, you say, I feel this way. I'm going to pick up the word of God. And I'm going to read the truth of his word. I'll go to Ephesians 4 and say, I need to put off the old and put on the new. And then I drop to my knees and I say, Jesus Help me do it. And you say, you know what? At first, that doesn't fulfill me the same way these old patterns fulfill me. But you continue for two days, for a week, for a month, for a year, and over a lifetime. Those patterns change. And day after day, you put off the old and you put on the new. So again, I I come back to it 
for each of us this morning as I pray here in just a moment. Think about this question. What is it in your life? Think about that list from Galatians 5, right? Is it envy? I say, you know what? Maybe I need to put away Twitter for a while or Facebook and open up the Word of God. Is it lust? Maybe I need to put away the internet at my house. Is it anger? Why am I angry? Because I can't control the people around me. And maybe in those moments when I feel out of control, I come back to the reality that God is in control. And I replace that routine with the life-giving word of God in Jesus Christ. Put off the old, put on the new, day after day until we see Jesus Christ in all his glory. And we pray that we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. What a convicting passage for every single person in this room. If we're paying attention to the promptings of your spirit, every single person in this room is aware that there are sin patterns in their own lives, habits that have accumulated partly through years of giving reign to them, and partly just because we live in a fallen and sinful world. Forgive us. But I also pray, illuminate our minds and our hearts that we even know what those are. Some of us, all of us have sin patterns that we're not even really aware of. I pray, make us aware and transform us. Soften our hearts that we would put away the old and take up the new, the new garment you've given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you, and we will praise you for eternity that you forgave us in Jesus. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.